Chapter Twenty Eight of the Sea Wolf. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Sea Wolf by Jack London. Chapter Twenty Eight. There is no need of going into an extended recital of our suffering in the small boat during the many days we were driven and drifted here and there, willy-nilly across the ocean. The high wind blew from the northwest for twenty-four hours when it fell calm and in the night sprang up from the southwest. This was dead in our teeth, but I took in the sea anchor and set sail, hauling a course on the wind which took us in a south-southeasterly direction. It was an even choice between this and the west-northwesterly course which the wind permitted, but the warm airs of the south fanned my desire for a warmer sea and swayed my decision. In three hours, it was midnight, I well remember, and as dark as I had ever seen it on the sea, the wind, still blowing out of the southwest, rose furiously, and once again I was compelled to set the sea anchor. Day broke and found me wan-eyed, and the ocean lashed white, the boat pitching almost on end to its drag. We were in imminent danger of being swamped by the whitecaps. As it was, spray and spume came aboard in such quantities that I bailed without cessation. The blankets were soaking. Everything was wet except Maud, and she, in oilskins, rubber boots, and sou'wester, was dry, all but her face and hands, and a stray wisp of hair. She relieved me at the bailing hole from time to time, and bravely she threw out the water and faced the storm. All things are relative. It was no more than a stiff blow, but to us, fighting for life in our frail craft, it was indeed a storm. Cold and cheerless, the wind beating on our faces, the white seas roaring by, we struggled through the day. Night came, but neither of us slept. Day came, and still the wind beat on our faces and the white seas roared past. By the second night Maud was falling asleep from exhaustion. I covered her with oilskins and a tarpaulin. She was comparatively dry, but she was numb from the cold. I feared greatly that she might die in the night, but day broke, cold and cheerless, with the same clouded sky and beating wind and roaring seas. I had had no sleep for forty-eight hours. I was wet and chilled to the marrow till I felt more dead than alive. My body was stiff from exertion, as well as from cold, and my aching muscles gave me the severest torture whenever I used them, and I used them continually. And all the time we were being driven off into the northeast, directly away from Japan, and toward bleak Bering Sea. And still we lived, and the boat lived, and the wind blew unabated. In fact, Toward nightfall of the third day, it increased a trifle and something more. The boat's bow plunged under a crest, and we came through quarter full of water. I bailed like a madman. The liability of shipping another such sea was enormously increased by the water that weighed the boat down and robbed it of its buoyancy. And another such sea meant the end. When I had the boat empty again, I was forced to take away the tarpaulin which covered Maud in order that I might lash it down across the bow. It was well I did. 
for it covered the boat fully a third of the way aft and three times in the next several hours it flung off the bulk of the down-rushing water when the bow shoved under the seas maud's condition was pitiable she sat crouched in the bottom of the boat her lips blue her face gray and plainly showing the pain she suffered but ever her eyes looked bravely at me and ever her lips uttered brave words the worst of the storm must have blown that night though little i noticed it i had succumbed and slept where i sat in the stern sheets the morning of the fourth day found the wind diminished to a gentle whisper the sea dying down and the sun shining upon us oh the blessed sun how we bathed our poor bodies in its delicious warmth reviving like bugs and crawling things after a storm we smiled again said amusing things and waxed optimistic over our situation yet it was if anything worse than ever we were farther from japan than the night we left the ghost nor could i more than roughly guess our latitude and longitude at a calculation of a two-mile drift per hour during the seventy and odd hours of the storm we had been driven at least one hundred and fifty miles to the northeast but was such calculated drift correct for all i knew it might have been four miles per hour instead of two in which case we were another hundred and fifty miles to the bad where we were i did not know though there was quite a likelihood that we were in the vicinity of the ghost there were seals about us and i was prepared to sight a sealing schooner at any time we did sight one in the afternoon when the northwest breeze had sprung up freshly once more but the strange schooner lost itself on the skyline and we alone occupied the circle of the sea came days of fog when even Maud's spirit drooped, and there were no merry words upon her lips. Days of calm, when we floated on the lonely immensity of sea, oppressed by its greatness, and yet marveling at the miracle of tiny life, for we still lived and struggled to live. Days of sleet and wind and snow squalls, when nothing could keep us warm or days of drizzling rain when we filled our water-breakers from the drip of the wet sail and ever i loved maud with an increasing love she was so many-sided so many-mooded protean-mooded i called her but i called her this and other and dearer things in my thoughts only though the declaration of my love urged and trembled upon my tongue a thousand times I knew that it was no time for such a declaration. If for no other reason, it was no time when one was protecting and trying to save a woman, to ask that woman for her love. Delicate as was the situation, not alone in this, but in other ways, I flattered myself that I was able to deal delicately with it and also I flattered myself that, by look or sign, I gave no advertisement of the love I felt for her. We were like good comrades, and we grew better comrades as the days went by. One thing about her which surprised me was her lack of timidity and fear. The terrible sea, the frail boat, the storms, the suffering, the 
the strangeness and isolation of the situation. All that should have frightened a robust woman seemed to make no impression upon her, who had known life only in its most sheltered and consummately artificial aspects, and who was herself all fire and dew and mist, sublimated spirit, all that was soft and tender and clinging in woman. And yet I am wrong. She was timid and afraid, but she possessed courage. The flesh and the qualms of the flesh she was heir to, but the flesh bore heavily only on the flesh, and she was spirit, first and always spirit, etherealized essence of life, calm as her calm eyes, and sure of permanence in the changing order of the universe. Came days of storm, days and nights of storm, when the ocean menaced us with its roaring whiteness, and the wind smote our struggling boat with a titan's buffets, and ever we were flung off farther and farther to the northeast. It was in such a storm, and the worst that we had experienced, that I cast a weary glance to leeward, not in quest of anything, but more from the weariness of facing the elemental strife and in mute appeal almost to the wrathful powers to cease and let us be. What I saw I could not at first believe. Days and nights of sleeplessness and anxiety had doubtless turned my head. I looked back at Maud to identify myself, as it were, in time and space. The sight of her dear wet cheeks, her flying hair, and her brave brown eyes convinced me that my vision was still healthy. Again I turned my face to leeward, and again I saw the jutting promontory, black and high and naked, the raging surf that broke about its base and beat its front high up with spouting fountains, the black and forbidden coastline running toward the southeast and fringed with a tremendous scarf of white. Maud, I said. Maud! She turned her head and beheld the sight. It cannot be Alaska, she cried. Alas, no, I answered, and asked, Can you swim? She shook her head. Neither can I, I said. So we must get ashore without swimming, in some opening between the rocks through which we can drive the boat and clamber out. But we must be quick, most quick, and sure. I spoke with a confidence she knew I did not feel for she looked at me with that unfaltering gaze of hers and said i have not thanked you yet for all you have done for me but she hesitated as if in doubt how best to word her gratitude well i said brutally for i was not quite pleased with her thanking me you might help me she smiled to acknowledge your obligations before you die not at all we are not going to die we shall land on that island, and we shall be snug and sheltered before the day is done. I spoke stoutly, but I did not believe a word. Nor was I prompted to lie through fear. I felt no fear, though I was sure of death in that boiling surge amongst the rocks which was rapidly growing nearer. It was impossible to hoist sail and claw off that shore. The wind would instantly capsize the boat. The seas would swamp it the moment it fell into the trough. And besides, the sail, lashed to the spare oars, dragged in the sea ahead of us. 
as i say i was not afraid to meet my own death there a few hundred yards to leeward but i was appalled at the thought that maud must die my cursed imagination saw her beaten and mangled against the rocks and it was too terrible i strove to compel myself to think we would make the landing safely and so i spoke not what i believed but what i preferred to believe i recoiled before contemplation of that frightful death and for a moment i entertained the wild idea of seizing maud in my arms and leaping overboard then i resolved to wait and at the very last moment when we entered on the final stretch to take her in my arms and proclaim my love and with her in my embrace to make the desperate struggle and die instinctively we drew together closer in the bottom of the boat i felt her mittened hand come out to mine and thus without speech we waited the end we were not far off the line the wind made with the western edge of the promontory and i watched in the hope that some set of the current or send of the sea would drift us past before we reached the surf we shall go clear i said with a confidence which i knew deceived neither of us by god we will go clear i cried five minutes later the oath left my lips in my excitement the first i do believe in my life unless trouble it an expletive of my youth be accounted an oath i beg your pardon i said you have convinced me of your sincerity she said with a faint smile i do know now that we shall go clear i had seen a distant headland past the extreme edge of the promontory and as we looked we could see grow the intervening coastline of what was evidently a deep cove at the same time there broke upon our ears a continuous and mighty bellowing it partook of the magnitude and volume of distant thunder and it came to us directly from leeward rising above the crash of the surf travelling directly in the teeth of the storm as we passed the point the whole cove burst upon our view a half-moon of white sandy beach upon which broke a huge surf and which was covered with myriads of seals it was from them that the great bellowing went up a rookery i cried now we are indeed saved there must be men and cruisers to protect them from the seal hunters possibly there is a station ashore but as i studied the surf which beat upon the beach i said still bad but not so bad and now if the gods be truly kind we shall drift by that next headland and come upon a perfectly sheltered beach where we may land without wetting our feet and the gods were kind the first and second headlands were directly in line with the southwest wind but once around the second and we went perilously near we picked up the third headland still in line with the wind and with the other two but the cove that intervened it penetrated deep into the land and the tide setting in drifted us under the shelter of the point here the sea was calm save for a heavy but smooth ground swell and i took in the sea anchor and began to row from the point the shore curved away more and more to the south and west until at last it disclosed a cove within the cove 
a little landlocked harbor, the water level as a pond, broken only by tiny ripples where vagrant breaths and wisps of the storm hurtled down from over the frowning wall of rock that backed the beach a hundred feet inshore. Here were no seals whatever. The boat's stern touched the hard shingle. I sprang out, extending my hand to Maud. The next moment she was beside me. As my fingers released hers, she clutched from my arm hastily. At the same moment I swayed, as about to fall to the sand. This was the startling effect of the cessation of motion. We had been so long upon the moving rocking sea that the stable land was a shock to us. We expected the beach to lift up this way and that, and the rocky walls to swing back and forth like the sides of a ship. And when we braced ourselves automatically for these various expected movements, their non-occurrence quite overcame our equilibrium. "'I really must sit down,' Maud said with a nervous laugh and a dizzy gesture, and forthwith she sat down on the sand. I attended to making the boat secure and joined her. Thus we landed on Endeavor Island, as we came to it land-sick from long custom of the sea. End of chapter 28「Fool!" I cried aloud in my vexation. I had unloaded the boat and carried its contents high up on the beach, where I had set about making a camp. There was driftwood, though not much, on the beach, and the sight of a coffee tin I had taken from the ghost larder had given me the idea of a fire. Blithering idiot, I was continuing. But Maud said, Tut, tut, in gentle reproval, and then asked why I was a blithering idiot. No matches, I groaned. Not a match did I bring, and now we shall have no hot coffee, soup, tea, or anything. "'Wasn't it, uh, Crusoe who rubbed sticks together?' she drawled. "'But I have read the personal narratives of a score of shipwrecked men who tried, and tried in vain,' I answered. "'I remember Winters, a newspaper fellow with an Alaskan and Siberian reputation. "'Met him at the Bibblet once, and he was telling us how he attempted to make a fire with a couple of sticks. "'It was most amusing. He told it inimitably, but... It was the story of a failure. I remember his conclusion, his black eyes flashing, as he said, Gentlemen, the South Sea Islander may do it, the Malay may do it, but take my word, it is beyond the white man. Oh, well, we've managed so far without it, she said cheerfully, and there is no reason why we cannot still manage without it. But think of the coffee, I cried. It's good coffee, too, I know. I took it from Larson's private stores. And look at that good wood. I confess I wanted the coffee badly, and I learned not long afterward that the berry was likewise a little weakness of Maud's. Besides, we had been so long on a cold diet that we were numb inside as well as out. Anything warm would have been most gratifying. But I complained no more, and set about making a tent of the sail for Maud. 
i had looked upon it as a simple task what of the oars mast boom and sprit to say nothing of plenty of lines but as i was without experience and as every detail was an experiment and every successful detail an invention the day was well gone before her shelter was an accomplished fact and then that night it rained and she was flooded out and driven back into the boat the next morning i dug a shallow ditch around the tent and an hour later a sudden gust of wind whipping over the rocky wall behind us picked up the tent and smashed it down on the sand thirty yards away maud laughed at my crestfallen expression and i said as soon as the wind abates i intend going in a boat to explore the island there must be a station somewhere and men and ships must visit the station some government must protect all these seals but i wish to have you comfortable before i start i should like to go with you was all she said it would be better if you remained you have had enough of hardship it is a miracle that you have survived and it won't be comfortable in the boat rowing and sailing in this rainy weather what you need is rest and i should like you to remain and get it something suspiciously akin to moistness dimmed her beautiful eyes before she dropped them and partly turned away her head i should prefer going with you she said in a low voice in which there was just a hint of appeal i might be able to help you her voice broke a little and if anything should happen to you think of me left here alone oh i intend being very careful i answered and i shall not go so far but what i can get back before night yes all said and done i think it vastly better for you to remain and sleep and rest and do nothing she turned and looked me in the eyes her gaze was unfaltering but soft please please she said oh so softly i stiffened myself to refuse and shook my head still she waited and looked at me i tried to word my refusal but wavered i saw the glad light spring into her eyes and knew that i had lost it was impossible to say no after that the wind died down in the afternoon and we were prepared to start the following morning there was no way of penetrating the island from our cove for the walls rose perpendicularly from the beach and on either side of the cove rose from the deep water morning broke dull and gray but calm and i was awake early and had the boat in readiness fool imbecile yahoo i shouted when i thought it was meet to arouse maud but this time i shouted in merriment as i danced about the beach bareheaded in mock despair her head appeared under the flap of the sail what now she asked sleepily and withal curiously coffee i cried what do you say to a cup of coffee hot coffee piping hot my she murmured you startled me and you are cruel here i have been composing my soul to do without it and here you are vexing me with your vain suggestions watch me i said from under the cliffs among the rocks i gathered a few dry sticks and chips these i whittled into shavings or split into kindling from my notebook i tore out a page and from the ammunition box took a shotgun shell removing the wads from the latter with my knife i emptied the powder on a flat rock 
Next, I pried the primer, or cap, from the shell, and laid it on the rock, in the midst of the scattered powder. All was ready. Maud still watched from the tent. Holding the paper in my left hand, I smashed down upon the cap with a rock held in my right. There was a puff of white smoke, a burst of flame, and the rough edge of the paper was alight. Maud clapped her hands gleefully. "'Prometheus!' she cried but i was too occupied to acknowledge her delight the feeble flame must be cherished tenderly if it were to gather strength and live i fed it shaving by shaving and sliver by sliver till at last it was snapping and crackling as it laid hold of the smaller chips and sticks to be cast away on an island had not entered into my calculations so we were without a kettle or cooking utensils of any sort but I made shift with the tin used for bailing the boat, and later, as we consumed our supply of canned goods, we accumulated quite an imposing array of cooking vessels. I boiled the water, but it was Maud who made the coffee, and how good it was! My contribution was canned beef fried with crumbled sea biscuit and water. The breakfast was a success, and we sat about the fire much longer than enterprising explorers should have done, sipping the hot black coffee and talking over our situation. I was confident that we should find a station in some one of the coves, for I knew that the rookeries of Bering Sea were thus guarded, but Maud advanced the theory, to prepare me for disappointment, I do believe, if disappointment were to come, that we had discovered an unknown rookery she was in very good spirits however and made quite merry in accepting our plight as a grave one if you are right i said then we must prepare to winter here our food will not last but there are the seals they go away in the fall so i must soon begin to lay in a supply of meat then there will be huts to build and driftwood to gather also we shall try out seal fat for lighting purposes Altogether, we'll have our hands full if we find the island uninhabited, which we shall not, I know. But she was right. We sailed with a beam wind along the shore, searching the coves with our glasses and landing occasionally, without finding a sign of human life. Yet we learned that we were not the first who had landed on Endeavor Island. High up on the beach of the second cove from ours, we discovered the splintered wreck of a boat a sealer's boat for the rowlocks were bound in senate a gun rack was on the starboard side of the bow and in white letters was faintly visible gazelle number two the boat had lain there for a long time for it was half filled with sand and the splintered wood had that weather-worn appearance due to long exposure to the elements in the stern sheets i found a rusty ten-gauge shotgun and a sailor's sheath knife broken short across and so rusted as to be almost unrecognizable they got away i said cheerfully but i felt a sinking at the heart and seemed to divine the presence of bleached bones somewhere on that beach i did not wish maud's spirits to be dampened by such a find so i turned seaward again with our boat and skirted the northeastern point of the island there were no beaches on the southern shore and by the early afternoon we rounded the black promontory and completed the circumnavigation of the island i estimated its circumference at twenty-five miles its width as varying from two to five miles while my most conservative calculation placed on its beaches 
200,000 seals. The island was highest at its extreme southwestern point, the headlands and backbone diminishing regularly until the northeastern portion was only a few feet above the sea. With the exception of our little cove, the other beaches sloped gently back for a distance of half a mile or so into what I might call rocky meadows, with here and there patches of moss and tundra grass. Here the seals hauled out and the old bulls guarded their harems while the young bulls hauled out by themselves. This brief description is all that Endeavor Island merits. Damp and soggy where it was not sharp and rocky, buffeted by storm winds and lashed by the sea with the air continually a-tremble with the bellowing of two hundred thousand amphibians it was a melancholy and miserable sojourning place maud who had prepared me for disappointment and who had been sprightly and vivacious all day broke down as we landed in our own little cove she strove bravely to hide it from me but while i was kindling another fire i knew she was stifling her sobs in the blankets under the sail tent it was my turn to be cheerful and i played the part to the best of my ability and with such success that i brought the laughter back into her dear eyes and song on her lips for she sang to me before she went to an early bed it was the first time i had heard her sing and I lay by the fire, listening and transported, for she was nothing if not an artist in everything she did, and her voice, though not strong, was wonderfully sweet and expressive. I still slept in the boat, and I lay awake long that night, gazing up at the first stars I had seen in many nights, and pondering the situation. Responsibility of this sort was a new thing to me, wolf larsen had been quite right i had stood on my father's legs my lawyers and agents had taken care of my money for me i had had no responsibilities at all then on the ghost i had learned to be responsible for myself and now for the first time in my life i found myself responsible for someone else and it was required of me that this should be the gravest of responsibilities for she was the one woman in the world the one small woman, as I love to think of her. End of chapter 29for two weeks we toiled at building a hut. Maud insisted on helping, and I could have wept over her bruised and bleeding hands, and still I was proud of her because of it. There was something heroic about this gently bred woman enduring our terrible hardship, and with her pittance of strength bending to the tasks of a peasant woman. She gathered many of the stones which I built into the walls of the hut also she turned a deaf ear to my entreaties when i begged her to desist she compromised however by taking upon herself the lighter labors of cooking and gathering driftwood and moss for our winter supply the hut's walls rose without difficulty and everything went smoothly until the problem of the roof confronted me of what use the four walls without a roof and of what could a roof be made there were the spare oars, very true, 
They would serve as roof beams, but with what was I to cover them? Moss would never do. Tundra grass was impracticable. We needed the sail for the boat, and the tarpaulin had begun to leak. Winters used walrus skins on his hut, I said. There are the seals, she suggested. So next day the hunting began. I did not know how to shoot, but I proceeded to learn, and when I had expended some thirty shells for three seals, I decided that the ammunition would be exhausted before I acquired the necessary knowledge. I had used eight shells for lighting fires before I hit upon the device of banking the embers with wet moss, and there remained not over a hundred shells in the box. We must club the seals, I announced, when convinced of my poor marksmanship. I have heard the sealers talk about clubbing them. They are so pretty, she objected. I cannot bear to think of it being done. It is so directly brutal, you know, so different from shooting them. That roof must go on, I answered grimly. Winter is almost here. It is our lives against theirs. It is unfortunate that we haven't plenty of ammunition, but I think anyway that they suffer less from being clubbed than from being all shot up. Besides, I shall do the clubbing. That's just it, she began eagerly and broke off in sudden confusion. Of course, I began, if you prefer... But what shall I be doing, she interrupted, with that softness I knew full well to be insistence, gathering firewood and cooking dinner. I answered lightly. She shook her head. It is too dangerous for you to attempt alone. I know, I know, she waved my protest. I am only a weak woman, but just my small assistance may enable you to escape disaster. But the clubbing? I suggested. Of course you will do that. I shall probably scream. I'll look away when... The danger is most serious? I laughed. I shall use my judgment when to look and when not to look, she replied with a grand air. The upshot of the affair was that she accompanied me next morning. I rode into the adjoining cove and up to the edge of the beach. There were seals all about us in the water, and the bellowing thousands on the beach compelled us to shout at each other to make ourselves heard. I know men club them. I said, trying to reassure myself, and gazing doubtfully at a large bull not thirty feet away, upreared on his foreflippers, and regarding me intently. But the question is, how do they club them? Let us gather tundra grass and thatch the roof, Maud said. She was as frightened as I at the prospect, and we had reason to be, gazing at close range at the gleaming teeth and dog-like mouths. I always thought they were afraid of men, I said. How do I know they are not afraid? I queried a moment later, after having rowed a few more strokes along the beach. Perhaps if I were to step boldly ashore, they would cut for it, and I could not catch up with one. And still I hesitated. I heard of a man once who invaded the nesting grounds of wild geese, Maud said. They killed him. The geese? Yes, the geese. My brother told me about it when I was a little girl. But I know men club them, I persisted. I think the tundra grass will make just as good a roof, she said. 
far from her intention her words were maddening me driving me on i could not play the coward before her eyes here goes i said backing water with one oar and running the bow ashore i stepped out and advanced valiantly upon a long-maned bull in the midst of his wives i was armed with the regular club with which the boat pullers killed the wounded seals gaffed aboard by the hunters it was only a foot and a half long and in my superb ignorance i never dreamed that the club used ashore when raiding the rookeries measured four to five feet the cows lumbered out of my way and the distance between me and the bull decreased he raised himself on his flippers with an angry movement we were a dozen feet apart still i advanced steadily looking for him to turn tail at any moment and run at six feet the panicky thought rushed into my mind what if he will not run why then i shall club him came the answer in my fear i had forgotten that i was there to get the bull instead of to make him run and just then he gave a snort and a snarl and rushed at me his eyes were blazing his mouth was wide open the teeth gleamed cruelly white without shame i confess that it was i who turned and footed it he ran awkwardly but he ran well he was but two paces behind when i tumbled into the boat and as i shoved off with an oar his teeth crunched down on the blade the stout wood was crushed like an eggshell maud and i were astounded a moment later he had dived under the boat seized the keel in his mouth and was shaking the boat violently my said maud let's go back i shook my head i can do what other men have done and i know that other men have club seals but i think i'll leave the bulls alone next time i wish you wouldn't she said now don't say please please i cried half angrily i do believe she made no reply and i knew my tone must have hurt her i beg your pardon i said or shouted rather in order to make myself heard over the roar of the rookery if you say so i'll turn and go back but honestly i'd rather stay now don't say that this is what you get for bringing a woman along she said she smiled at me whimsically gloriously and i knew there was no need for forgiveness i rode a couple of hundred feet along the beach so as to recover my nerves and then stepped ashore again do be cautious she called after me i nodded my head and proceeded to make a flank attack on the nearest harem all went well until i aimed a blow at an outlying cow's head and fell short she snorted and tried to scramble away i ran in close and struck another blow hitting the shoulder instead of the head watch out i heard maud scream in my excitement i had not been taking notice of other things and i looked up to see the lord of the harem charging down upon me again i fled to the boat hotly pursued but this time maud made no suggestion of turning back it would be better i imagine if you let harems alone and devoted your attention to lonely and inoffensive-looking seals was what she said i think i have read something about them dr jordan's book i believe they are the young bulls not old enough to have harems of their own he called them the hollis chickie 
or something like that. It seems to me, if we were to find where they haul out... It seems to me that your fighting instinct is aroused, I laughed. She flushed, quickly and prettily. I'll admit I don't like defeat any more than you do, or any more than I like the idea of killing such pretty, inoffensive creatures. Pretty? I sniffed. I failed to mark anything preeminently pretty about those foamy-mouthed beasts that raced me. Your point of view, she laughed. You lack perspective. Now, if you did not have to get so close to the subject... The very thing, I cried. What I need is a longer club. And there's that broken oar, ready to hand. It just comes to me, she said, that Captain Larson was telling me how the men raided the rookeries. They drive the seals in small herds a short distance inland before they kill them. I don't care to undertake the herding of one of those harems, I objected. But there are the Hollis Chicky, she said. The Hollis Chicky haul out by themselves, and Dr. Jordan says that paths are left between the harems, and that as long as the Hollis Chicky keeps strictly to the path, they are unmolested by the masters of the harem. There's one now, I said, pointing to a young bull in the water. Let's watch him and follow him if he hauls out. He swam directly to the beach and clambered out into a small opening between two harems, the masters of which made warning noises but did not attack him. We watched him travel slowly inward, threading about among the harems along what must have been the path. Here goes, I said, stepping out but I confess my heart was in my mouth as I thought of going through the heart of that monstrous herd. It would be wise to make the boat fast, Maud said. She had stepped out beside me, and I regarded her with wonderment. She nodded her head determinedly. Yes, I'm going with you, so you may as well secure the boat and arm me with a club. Let's go back, I said dejectedly. I think tundra grass will do after all. You know it won't, was her reply. Shall I lead? With a shrug of the shoulders, but with the warmest admiration and pride at heart for this woman, I equipped her with the broken oar and took another for myself. It was with nervous trepidation that we made the first few rods of the journey. Once Maud screamed in terror as a cow thrust an inquisitive nose toward her foot, and several times I quickened my pace for the same reason. But beyond warning coughs from either side, there were no signs of hostility. It was a rookery which had never been raided by the hunters, and in consequence the seals were mild-tempered and at the same time unafraid. In the very heart of the herd, the din was terrific. It was almost dizzying in its effect. I paused and smiled reassuringly at Maud, for I had recovered my equanimity sooner than she. I could see that she was still badly frightened. She came close to me and shouted, I'm dreadfully afraid! And I was not. Though the novelty had not yet worn off, the peaceful comportment of the seals had quieted my alarm. Maud was trembling. I'm afraid, and I'm not afraid, she chattered with shaking jaws. It's my miserable body, not I. It's all right, it's all right, I reassured her, my arm passing instinctively and protectingly around her. 
i shall never forget in that moment how instantly conscious i became of my manhood the primitive deeps of my nature stirred i felt myself masculine the protector of the weak the fighting male and best of all i felt myself the protector of my loved one she leaned against me so light and lily frail and as her trembling eased away it seemed as though i became aware of prodigious strength i felt myself a match for the most ferocious bull in the herd and i know had such a bull charged upon me that i should have met it unflinchingly and quite coolly and i know that i should have killed it i am all right now she said looking up at me gratefully let us go on and that the strength in me had quieted her and given her confidence filled me with an exultant joy the youth of the race seemed burgeoning in me over-civilized man that i was and i lived for myself the old hunting days and forest nights of my remote and forgotten ancestry i had much for which to thank wolf larsen was my thought as we went along the path between the jostling harems a quarter of a mile inland we came upon the hollis chickie sleek young bulls living out the loneliness of their bachelorhood and gathering strength against the day when they would fight their way into the ranks of the benedicts everything now went smoothly i seemed to know just what to do and how to do it shouting making threatening gestures with my club and even prodding the lazy ones i quickly cut out a score of the young bachelors from their companions whenever one made an attempt to break back toward the water i headed it off Maud took an active part in the drive, and with her cries and flourishings of the broken oar was of considerable assistance. I noticed, though, that whenever one looked tired and laggard, she let it slip past. But I noticed also whenever one, with a show of fight, tried to break past, that her eyes glinted and showed bright, and she wrapped it smartly with her club my it's exciting she cried pausing from sheer weakness i think i'll sit down i drove the little herd a dozen strong now what of the escapes she had permitted a hundred yards farther on and by the time she joined me i had finished the slaughter and was beginning to skin an hour later we went proudly back along the path between the harems and twice again we came down the path burdened with skins till i thought we had enough to roof the hut i set the sail laid one tack out of the cove and on the other tack made our own little inner cove it's just like homecoming maud said as i ran the boat ashore i heard her words with a responsive thrill it was all so dearly intimate and natural and i said it seems as though i have lived this life always the world of books and bookish folk is very vague more like a dream memory than an actuality i surely have hunted and forayed and fought all the days of my life and you too seem a part of it you are i was on the verge of saying my woman my mate but glibly changed it to standing the hardship well but her ear had caught the flaw she recognized a flight that midmost broke she gave me a quick look not that you were saying 
that the american mrs meynell was living the life of a savage and living it quite successfully i said easily oh was all she replied but i could have sworn there was a note of disappointment in her voice but my woman my mate kept ringing in my head for the rest of the day and for many days yet never did it ring more loudly than that night as i watched her draw back the blanket of moss from the coals blow up the fire and cook the evening meal it must have been latent savagery stirring in me for the old word so bound up with the roots of the race to grip me and thrill me and grip and thrill they did till i fell asleep murmuring them to myself over and over again End of chapter thirty chapter thirty one of the sea wolf this librivox recording is in the public domain the sea wolf by jack london chapter thirty one it will smell i said but it will keep in the heat and keep out the rain and snow we were surveying the completed sealskin roof it is clumsy but it will serve the purpose and that is the main thing i went on yearning for her praise and she clapped her hands and declared that she was hugely pleased but it is dark in here she said the next moment her shoulders shrinking with a little involuntary shiver you might have suggested a window when the walls were going up i said it was for you and you should have seen the need of a window but i never do see the obvious you know she laughed back and besides you can knock a hole in the wall at any time quite true i had not thought of it i replied wagging my head sagely but have you thought of ordering the window glass just call up the firm red forty four fifty one i think it is and tell them what size and kind of a glass you wish that means she began no window it was a dark and evil appearing thing that hut not fit for aught better than swine in a civilized land but for us who had known the misery of the open boat it was a snug little habitation following the housewarming which was accomplished by means of seal oil and a wick made from cotton caulking came the hunting for our winter's meat and the building of the second hut it was a simple affair now to go forth in the morning and return by noon with a boatload of seals and then while i worked at building the hut maud tried out the oil from the blubber and kept a slow fire under the frames of meat i had heard of jerking beef on the plains and our seal meat cut in thin strips and hung in the smoke cured excellently the second hut was easier to erect for i built it against the first and only three walls were required but it was work hard work all of it maud and i worked from dawn till dark to the limit of our strength so that when night came we crawled stiffly to bed and slept the animal-like sleep of exhaustion and yet maud declared that she had never felt better or stronger in her life i knew this was true of myself but hers was such a lily strength that i feared she would break down often and often her last reserve force gone i have seen her stretched flat on her back on the sand in the way she had of resting and recuperating and then she would be up on her feet and toiling hard as ever where she obtained this strength was the marvel to me think of the long rest this winter 
was her reply to my remonstrances. While we'll be clamorous for something to do. We held a housewarming in my hut the night it was roofed. It was the end of the third day of a fierce storm which had swung around the compass from the southeast to the northwest, and which was then blowing directly in upon us. The beaches of the outer cove were thundering with the surf, and even in our landlocked inner cove a respectable sea was breaking. No high backbone of island sheltered us from the wind, and it whistled and bellowed about the hut, till at times I feared for the strength of the walls. The skin roof, stretched tightly as a drumhead I had thought, sagged and bellied with every gust, and innumerable interstices in the walls, not so tightly stuffed with moss as Maud had supposed, disclosed themselves. Yet the seal oil burned brightly, and we were warm and comfortable. It was a pleasant evening indeed, and we voted that, as a social function on Endeavor Island, it had not yet been eclipsed. Our minds were at ease. Not only had we resigned ourselves to the bitter winter, but we were prepared for it. The seals could depart on their mysterious journey into the south at any time now, for all we cared, and the storms held no terror for us. Not only were we sure of being dry and warm and sheltered from the wind, but we had the softest and most luxurious mattresses that could be made from moss. This had been Maud's idea, and she had herself jealously gathered all the moss. This was to be my first night on the mattress, and I knew I should sleep the sweeter because she had made it. As she rose to go, she turned to me with the whimsical way she had, and said, Something is going to happen. Is happening, for that matter. I feel it. Something is coming here, to us. It is coming now. I don't know what it is, but it is coming. Good or bad? I asked. She shook her head. I don't know, but it is there, somewhere. She pointed in the direction of the sea and wind. It's a lee shore, I laughed, and I am sure I'd rather be here than arriving on a night like this. You are not frightened? I asked, as I stepped to open the door for her. Her eyes looked bravely into mine. And you feel well, perfectly well? Never better, was her answer. We talked a little while longer before she went. Good night, Maud, I said. Good night, Humphrey, she said. The use of our given names had come about quite as a matter of course, and was as unpremeditated as it was natural. In that moment I could have put my arms around her and drawn her to me. I should certainly have done so out in that world in which we belonged. As it was, the situation stopped there in the only way it could. But I was left alone in my little hut, glowing warmly through and through with a pleasant satisfaction. And I knew that a tie, or a tacit something, existed between us which had not existed before. End of chapter 31《Chapter Thirty Two of the Sea Wolf》This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Sea Wolf by Jack London. Chapter Thirty Two. I awoke oppressed by a mysterious sensation. There seemed something missing in my environment. But the mystery and oppressiveness vanished after the first few seconds of waking, when I identified the missing something as the wind. 
I had fallen asleep in that state of nerve tension with which one meets the continuous shock of sound or movement, and I had awakened, still tense, bracing myself to meet the pressure of something which no longer bore upon me. It was the first night I had spent under cover in several months, and I lay luxuriously for some minutes under my blankets, for once not wet with fog or spray, analyzing, first, the effect produced upon me by the cessation of the wind, and next, the joy which was mine from resting on the mattress made by Maud's hands. When I had dressed and opened the door, I heard the waves still lapping on the beach, garrulously attesting the fury of the night. It was a clear day, and the sun was shining. I had slept late, and I stepped outside with sudden energy, bent upon making up lost time, as befitted a dweller on Endeavor Island. And when outside, I stopped short. I believed my eyes without question, and yet I was for the moment stunned by what they disclosed to me. There on the beach, not fifty feet away, bow on, dismasted, was a black-hulled vessel. Mast and booms, tangled with shrouds, sheets, and rent canvas, were rubbing gently alongside. I could have rubbed my eyes as I looked. There was the homemade galley we had built, the familiar break of the poop, the low yacht cabin scarcely rising above the rail. It was the ghost! What freak of fortune had brought it here? Here, of all spots! What chance of chances! I looked at the bleak, inaccessible wall at my back and know the profundity of despair. Escape was hopeless, out of the question. I thought of Maud, asleep there in the hut we had reared. I remembered her. Good night, Humphrey. My woman, my mate, went ringing through my brain. But now, alas, it was a knell that sounded. Then everything went black before my eyes. Possibly it was the fraction of a second, but I had no knowledge of how long an interval had lapsed before I was myself again. There lay the ghost, bow on to the beach, her splintered bowsprit projecting over the sand, her tangled spars rubbing against her side to the lift of the crooning waves. Something must be done, must be done. It came upon me suddenly as strange that nothing moved aboard. Wearied from the night of struggle and wreck, all hands were yet asleep, I thought. My next thought was that Maud and I might yet escape. If we could take to the boat and make round the point before anyone awoke, I would call her and start. My hand was lifted at the door to knock when I recollected the smallness of the island. We could never hide ourselves upon it. There was nothing for us but the wide, raw ocean. I thought of our snug little huts, our supplies of meat and oil and moss and firewood, and I knew that we could never survive the wintry sea and the great storms which were to come. So I stood with hesitant knuckle without her door. It was impossible, impossible. A wild thought of rushing in and killing her as she slept rose in my mind. And then, in a flash, the better solution came to me. All hands were asleep. 
why not creep aboard the ghost well i knew the way to wolf larsen's bunk and kill him in his sleep after that well we would see but with him dead there was time and space in which to prepare to do other things and besides whatever new situation arose it could not possibly be worse than the present one my knife was at my hip i returned to my hut for the shotgun made sure it was loaded and went down to the ghost with some difficulty and at the expense of a wetting to the waist i climbed aboard the forecastle scuttle was open i paused to listen for the breathing of the men but there was no breathing i almost gasped as the thought came to me what if the ghost is deserted i listened more closely there was no sound i cautiously descended the ladder the place had the empty and musty feel and smell usual to a dwelling no longer inhabited everywhere was a thick litter of discarded and ragged garments old sea boots leaky oilskins all the worthless forecastle dunnage of a long voyage abandoned hastily was my conclusion as i ascended to the deck hope was alive again in my breast and i looked about me with greater coolness i noted that the boats were missing the steerage told the same tale as the forecastle the hunters had packed their belongings with similar haste the ghost was deserted it was maud's and mine i thought of the ship's stores and the lazarette beneath the cabin and the idea came to me of surprising maud with something nice for breakfast the reaction from my fear and the knowledge that the terrible deed i had come to do was no longer necessary made me boyish and eager i went up the steerage companionway two steps at a time with nothing distinct in my mind except joy and the hope that maud would sleep on until the surprise breakfast was quite ready for her as i rounded the galley a new satisfaction was mine at thought of all the splendid cooking utensils inside i sprang up the break of the poop and saw wolf larsen what of my impetus and the stunning surprise i clattered three or four steps along the deck before i could stop myself he was standing in the companionway only his head and shoulders visible staring straight at me his arms were resting on the half-open slide he made no movement whatever simply stood there staring at me i began to tremble the old stomach sickness clutched me i put one hand on the edge of the house to steady myself my lips seemed suddenly dry and i moistened them against the need for speech nor did i for an instant take my eyes off him neither of us spoke there was something ominous in his silence his immobility all my old fear of him returned and my new fear was increased a hundredfold and still we stood the pair of us staring at each other i was aware of the demand for action and my old helplessness strong upon me i was waiting for him to take the initiative then as the moments went by it came to me that the situation was analogous to the one in which i had approached the long-maned bull my intention of clubbing obscured by fear until it became a desire to make him run so it was at last impressed upon me that i was there not to have wolf larsen take the initiative but to take it myself i cocked both barrels and leveled the shotgun at him 
Had he moved, attempted to drop down the companionway, I know I would have shot him. But he stood motionless and staring as before. And as I faced him with leveled gun shaking in my hands, I had time to note the worn and haggard appearance of his face. It was as if some strong anxiety had wasted it. His cheeks were sunken, and there was a wearied, puckered expression on the brow. And it seemed to me that his eyes were strange, not only the expression, but the physical, seeming as though the optic nerves and supporting muscles had suffered strain and slightly twisted the eyeballs. All this I saw, and my brain, now working rapidly, I thought a thousand thoughts, and yet I could not pull the triggers. I lowered the gun and stepped to the corner of the cabin, primarily to relieve the tension on my nerves and to make a new start, and, incidentally, to be closer. Again I raised the gun. He was almost at arm's length. There was no hope for him. I was resolved. There was no possible chance of missing him, no matter how poor my marksmanship. And yet I wrestled with myself and could not pull the triggers. Well? he demanded impatiently. I strove vainly to force my fingers down on the triggers, and vainly I strove to say something. "'Why don't you shoot?' he asked. I cleared my throat of a huskiness which prevented speech. "'Hump,' he said slowly, "'you can't do it. You are not exactly afraid. You are impotent. Your conventional morality is stronger than you.' You are the slave to the opinions which have credence among the people you have known and have read about. Their code has been drummed into your head from the time you lisped, and in spite of your philosophy and of what I have taught you, it won't let you kill an unarmed, unresisting man. I know it, I said hoarsely. And you know that I would kill an unarmed man as readily as I would smoke a cigar, he went on. And you know me for what I am, my worth in the world by your standard. You have called me snake, tiger, shark, monster, and caliban. And yet, you little rag puppet, you little echoing mechanism, you are unable to kill me as you would a snake or a shark, because I have hands, feet, and a body shaped somewhat like yours. Bah! I had hoped better things of you, Hump. He stepped out of the companionway and came up to me. Put down that gun. I want to ask you some questions. I haven't had a chance to look around yet. What place is this? How is the ghost lying? How did you get wet? Where's Maud? I beg your pardon, Miss Brewster. Or, should I say, Mrs. Van Waden? I had backed away from him, almost weeping at my inability to shoot him, but not fool enough to put down the gun. I hoped desperately that he might commit some hostile act, attempt to strike me or choke me, for in such way only I knew I could be stirred to shoot. This is Endeavor Island, I said. Never heard of it, he broke in. At least, that's our name for it, I amended. Our? he queried. Who's our? Miss Brewster and myself. And the ghost is lying, as you can see for yourself, bow onto the beach. "'There are seals here,' he said. "'They woke me up with their barking, or I'd be sleeping yet. "'I heard them when I drove in last night. "'They were the first warning that I was on a lee shore. "'It's a rookery, 
the kind of thing i've hunted for years thanks to my brother death i've lighted on a fortune it's a mint what's its bearings haven't the slightest idea i said but you ought to know quite closely what were your last observations he smiled inscrutably but did not answer well where's all hands i asked how does it come that you are alone i was prepared for him again to set aside my question and was surprised at the readiness of his reply my brother got me inside forty-eight hours and through no fault of mine boarded me in the night with only the watch on deck hunters went back on me he gave them a bigger lay heard him offering it did it right before me of course the crew gave me the go-by that was to be expected all hands went over the side and there i was marooned on my own vessel it was death's turn and it's all in the family anyway but how did you lose the masts i asked walk over and examine those lanyards he said pointing to where the mizzen rigging should have been they have been cut with a knife i exclaimed not quite he laughed it was a neater job look again i looked the lanyards had been almost severed with just enough left to hold the shrouds till some severe strain should be put upon them cookie did that <laughs> he laughed again i know though i didn't spot him at it kind of evened up the score a bit good for mugridge i cried yes that's what i thought when everything went over the side only i said it on the other side of my mouth but what were you doing while all this was going on i asked my best you may be sure which wasn't much under the circumstances i turned to re-examine thomas mugridge's work i guess i'll sit down and take the sunshine i heard wolf larsen saying there was a hint just a slight hint of physical feebleness in his voice and it was so strange that i looked quickly at him his hand was sweeping nervously across his face as though he were brushing away cobwebs i was puzzled the whole thing was so unlike the wolf larsen i had known how are your headaches i asked they still trouble me was his answer i think i have one coming on now he slipped down from his sitting posture till he lay on the deck then he rolled over on his side his head resting on the biceps of the underarm the forearm shielding his eyes from the sun i stood regarding him wonderingly now's your chance hump he said i don't understand i lied for i thoroughly understood oh nothing he added softly as if he were drowsing only you've got me where you want me no i haven't i retorted for i want you a thousand miles away from here he chuckled and thereafter spoke no more he did not stir as i passed by him and went down into the cabin i lifted the trap in the floor but for some moments gazed dubiously into the darkness of the lazarette beneath i hesitated to descend what if his lying down were a ruse pretty indeed to be caught there like a rat i crept softly up to the companionway and peeped at him he was lying as i had left him again i went below but before i dropped into the lazarette i took the precaution of casting down the door in advance at least there would be no lid to the trap but it was all needless i regained the cabin with a store of jams sea biscuits canned meats and such things all i could carry and replaced the trap door a peep at wolf larsen showed me that he had not moved 
a bright thought struck me i stole into his stateroom and possessed myself of his revolvers there were no other weapons though i thoroughly ransacked the three remaining staterooms to make sure i returned and went through the steerage and forecastle and in the galley gathered up all the sharp meat and vegetable knives then i bethought me of the great yachtsman's knife he always carried and i came to him and spoke to him first softly then loudly he did not move i bent over and took it from his pocket i breathed more freely he had no arms with which to attack me from a distance while i armed could always forestall him should he attempt to grapple me with his terrible gorilla arms filling a coffee-pot and frying-pan with part of my plunder and taking some chinaware from the cabin pantry i left wolf larsen lying in the sun and went ashore maud was still asleep i blew up the embers we had not yet arranged a winter kitchen and quite feverishly cooked the breakfast toward the end i heard her moving about within the hut making her toilet just as all was ready and the coffee poured the door opened and she came forth it's not fair of you was her greeting you are usurping one of my prerogatives you know you and i agreed that the cooking should be mine and but just this once i pleaded if you promise not to do it again she smiled unless of course you have grown tired of my poor efforts to my delight she never once looked toward the beach and i maintained the banter with such success all unconsciously she sipped coffee from the china cup ate fried evaporated potatoes and spread marmalade on her biscuit but it could not last i saw the surprise that came over her she had discovered the china plate from which she was eating she looked over the breakfast noting detail after detail then she looked at me and her face turned slowly toward the beach humphrey she said the old unnameable terror mounted into her eyes is he she quavered i nodded my head end of chapter 32chapter 33 of the sea wolf this librivox recording is in the public domain the sea wolf by jack london chapter 33 we waited all day for wolf larsen to come ashore it was an intolerable period of anxiety each moment one or the other of us cast expectant glances towards the ghost but he did not come he did not even appear on deck perhaps it is his headache i said i left him lying on the poop he may lie there all night i think i'll go and see maud looked entreaty at me it's all right i assured her i shall take the revolvers you know i collected every weapon on board but there are his arms his hands his terrible terrible hands she objected and then she cried oh humphrey i am afraid of him don't go please don't go she rested her hand appealingly on mine and sent my pulse fluttering my heart was surely in my eyes for a moment the dear and lovely woman and she was so much the woman clinging and appealing sunshine and dew to my manhood rooting it deeper and sending through it the sap of a new strength i was for putting my arm around her as when in the midst of the seal herd but i considered and refrained 
i shall not take any risks i said i'll merely peep over the bow and see she pressed my hand earnestly and let me go but the space on deck where i had left him lying was vacant he had evidently gone below that night we stood alternate watches one of us sleeping at a time for there was no telling what wolf larsen might do he was certainly capable of anything the next day we waited and the next and still he made no sign these headaches of his these attacks maud said on the afternoon of the fourth day perhaps he is ill very ill he may be dead or dying was her afterthought when she had waited some time for me to speak better so i answered but think humphrey a fellow creature in his last lonely hour perhaps i suggested yes even perhaps she acknowledged but we do not know it would be terrible if he were i could never forgive myself we must do something perhaps i suggested again i waited smiling inwardly at the woman of her which compelled a solicitude for wolf larsen of all creatures where was her solicitude for me i thought for me whom she had been afraid to have merely peep aboard she was too subtle not to follow the trend of my silence and she was as direct as she was subtle you must go aboard humphrey and find out she said and if you want to laugh at me you have my consent and forgiveness i arose obediently and went down to the beach do be careful she called after me i waved my arm from the forecastle head and dropped down to the deck aft i walked to the cabin companion where i contented myself with hailing below wolf larsen answered and as he started to ascend the stairs i cocked my revolver i displayed it openly during our conversation but he took no notice of it he appeared the same physically as when last i saw him but he was gloomy and silent in fact the few words we spoke could hardly be called a conversation i did not inquire why he had not been ashore nor did he ask why i had not come aboard his head was all right again he said and so without further parley i left him maud received my report with obvious relief and the sight of smoke which later rose in the galley put her in a more cheerful mood the next day and the next we saw the galley smoke rising and sometimes we caught glimpses of him on the poop but that was all he made no attempt to come ashore this we knew for we still maintained our night watches we were waiting for him to do something to show his hand so to say and his inaction puzzled and worried us a week of this passed by we had no other interest than wolf larsen and his presence weighed us down with an apprehension which prevented us from doing any of the little things we had planned but at the end of the week the smoke ceased coming from the galley and he no longer showed himself on the poop i could see maud's solicitude again growing though she timidly and even proudly i think forebode a repetition of her request after all what censure could be put upon her she was divinely altruistic and she was a woman besides i was myself aware of hurt at thought of this man whom i had tried to kill dying alone with his fellow creatures so near he was right the code of my group was stronger than i the fact that he had hands feet and a body shaped somewhat like mine constituted a claim which i could not ignore 
so i did not wait a second time for maud to send me i discovered that we stood in need of condensed milk and marmalade and announced that i was going aboard i could see that she wavered she even went so far as to murmur that they were non-essentials and that my trip after them might be inexpedient and as she had followed the trend of my silence she now followed the trend of my speech and she knew that i was going aboard not because of condensed milk and marmalade but because of her and her anxiety which she knew she had failed to hide i took off my shoes when i gained the forecastle head and went noiselessly aft in my stocking feet nor did i call this time from the top of the companionway cautiously descending i found the cabin deserted the door to his stateroom was closed at first i thought of knocking then i remembered my ostensible errand and resolved to carry it out carefully avoiding noise i lifted the trap-door in the floor and set it to one side the slop-chest as well as the provisions was stored in a lazarette and i took advantage of the opportunity to lay in a stock of underclothing as i emerged from the lazarette i heard sounds in wolf larsen's stateroom i crouched and listened the doorknob rattled furtively instinctively i slunk back behind the table and drew and cocked my revolver the door swung open and he came forth never had i seen so profound a despair as that which i saw on his face the face of wolf larsen the fighter the strong man the indomitable one for all the world like a woman wringing her hands he raised his clenched fists and groaned one fist unclosed and the open palm swept across his eyes as though brushing away cobwebs god god he groaned and the clenched fists were raised again to the infinite despair with which his throat vibrated it was horrible i was trembling all over and i could feel the shivers running up and down my spine and the sweat standing out on my forehead surely there can be little in this world more awful than the spectacle of a strong man in the moment when he is utterly weak and broken but wolf larsen regained control of himself by an exertion of his remarkable will and it was an exertion his whole frame shook with the struggle he resembled a man on the verge of a fit his face strove to compose itself writhing and twisting in the effort till he broke down again once more the clenched fists went upward and he groaned he caught his breath once or twice and sobbed then he was successful i could have thought him the old wolf larsen and yet there was in his movements a vague suggestion of weakness and indecision he started for the companionway and stepped forward quite as i had been accustomed to see him do and yet again in his very walk there seemed a suggestion of weakness and indecision i was now concerned with fear for myself the open trap lay directly in his path and his discovery of it would lead instantly to his discovery of me i was angry with myself for being caught in so cowardly a position crouching on the floor there was yet time i rose swiftly to my feet and i know quite unconsciously assumed a defiant attitude he took no notice of me nor did he notice the open trap before i could grasp the situation or act he had walked right into the trap 
one foot was descending into the opening while the other foot was just on the verge of beginning the uplift but when the descending foot missed the solid flooring and felt vacancy beneath it was the old wolf larsen and the tiger muscles that made the falling body spring across the opening even as it fell so that he struck on his chest and stomach with arms outstretched on the floor of the opposite side the next instant he had drawn up his legs and rolled clear but he rolled into my marmalade and underclothes and against the trap-door the expression on his face was one of complete comprehension but before i could guess what he had comprehended he had dropped the trap-door into place closing the lazarette then i understood he thought he had me inside also he was blind blind as a bat i watched him breathing carefully so that he should not hear me he stepped quickly to his stateroom i saw his hand miss the doorknob by an inch quickly fumble for it and find it this was my chance i tiptoed across the cabin and to the top of the stairs he came back dragging a heavy sea chest which he deposited on top of the trap not content with this he fetched a second chest and placed it on top of the first then he gathered up the marmalade and underclothes and put them on the table when he started up the companionway i retreated silently rolling over on top of the cabin he shoved the slide part way back and rested his arms on it his body still in the companionway his attitude was of one looking forward the length of the schooner or staring rather for his eyes were fixed and unblinking i was only five feet away and directly in what should have been his line of vision it was uncanny i felt myself a ghost what of my invisibility i waved my hand back and forth of course without effect but when the moving shadow fell across his face i saw at once that he was susceptible to the impression his face became more expectant and tense as he tried to analyze and identify the impression he knew that he had responded to something from without that his sensibility had been touched by a changing something in his environment but what it was he could not discover i ceased waving my hand so that the shadow remained stationary he slowly moved his head back and forth under it and turned from side to side now in the sunshine now in the shade feeling the shadow as it were testing it by sensation i too was busy trying to reason out how he was aware of the existence of so intangible a thing as a shadow if it were his eyeballs only that were affected or if his optic nerve were not wholly destroyed the explanation was simple if otherwise then the only conclusion i could reach was that the sensitive skin recognized the difference of temperature between shade and sunshine or perhaps who can tell it was that fabled sixth sense which conveyed to him the loom and feel of an object close at hand giving over his attempt to determine the shadow he stepped on deck and started forward walking with a swiftness and confidence which surprised me and still there was that hint of the feebleness of the blind in his walk i knew it now for what it was to my amused chagrin he discovered my shoes on the forecastle head and brought them back with him to the galley i watched him build the fire and set about cooking food for himself 
then i stole into the cabin for my marmalade and underclothes slipped back past the galley and climbed down to the beach to deliver my barefoot report End of chapter 33「It's too bad the ghost has lost her masts. Why, we could sail away in her. Don't you think we could, Humphrey? I sprang excitedly to my feet. I wonder, I wonder, I repeated, pacing up and down. Maud's eyes were shining with anticipation as they followed me. She had such faith in me, and the thought of it was so much added power. I remembered Michelet's, To man, woman is as the earth was to her legendary son. He has but to fall down and kiss her breast, and he is strong again. For the first time I knew the wonderful truth of his words. Why, I was living them. Maud was all this to me, an unfailing source of strength and courage. I had but to look at her, or think of her, and be strong again. It can be done. It can be done, I was thinking and asserting aloud. What men have done, I can do. And if they have never done this before, still I can do it. What, for goodness sake, Maud demanded. Do be merciful. What is it you can do? We can do it i amended why nothing else than put the masts back into the ghost and sail away humphrey she exclaimed and i felt as proud of my conception as if it were already a fact accomplished but how is it possible to be done she asked i don't know was my answer i know only that i am capable of doing anything these days i smiled proudly at her too proudly, for she dropped her eyes and was for the moment silent. "'But there is Captain Larson,' she objected. "'Blind and helpless,' I answered promptly, waving him aside as a straw. "'But those terrible hands of his! You know how he leaped across the opening of the lazarette. And you know also how I crept about and avoided him,' I contended gaily. "'And lost your shoes.' You'd hardly expect them to avoid Wolf Larsen without my feet inside of them. We both laughed, and then went seriously to work, constructing the plan whereby we were to step the mast of the ghosts and return to the world. I remembered hazily the physics of my school days, while the last few months had given me practical experience with mechanical purchases. I must say, though, when we walked down to the ghost to inspect more closely the task before us, that the sight of the great masts lying in the water almost disheartened me. Where were we to begin? If there had been one mast standing, something high up to which to fasten blocks and tackles, but there was nothing. It reminded me of the problem of lifting oneself by one's bootstraps. I understood the mechanics of levers, but where was I to get a fulcrum? There was the mainmast, fifteen inches in diameter at what was now the butt, still sixty-five feet in length, and weighing, I roughly calculated, at least three thousand pounds. And then came the foremast, larger in diameter, and weighing surely thirty-five hundred pounds. Where was I to begin? 
Maud stood silently by my side while I evolved in my mind the contrivance known among sailors as shears. But, though known to sailors, I invented it there on Endeavour Island. By crossing and lashing the ends of two spars, and then elevating them in the air like an inverted V, I could get a point above the deck to which to make fast my hoisting tackle. To this hoisting tackle I could, if necessary, attach a second hoisting tackle. And then there was the windlass. Maud saw that I had achieved a solution, and her eyes warmed sympathetically. "'What are you going to do?' she asked. "'Clear that raffle,' I answered, pointing to the tangled wreckage overside. Ah, the decisiveness, the very sound of the words was good in my ears. Clear that raffle. Imagine so salty a phrase on the lips of the Humphrey Van Waden of a few months gone. There must have been a touch of the melodramatic in my pose and voice, for Maud smiled. Her appreciation of the ridiculous was keen, and in all things she unerringly saw and felt where it existed the touch of sham the overshading, the overtone. It was this which had given poise and penetration to her own work and made her of worth to the world. The serious critic, with the sense of humor and the power of expression, must inevitably command the world's ear. And so it was that she had commanded. Her sense of humor was really the artist's instinct for proportion. "'I'm sure I've heard it before, somewhere in books.' she murmured gleefully. I had an instinct for proportion myself, and I collapsed forthwith, descending from the dominant pose of a master of matter to a state of humble confusion, which was, to say the least, very miserable. Her hand leapt out at once to mine. "'I'm so sorry,' she said. "'No need to be,' I gulped. "'It does me good. There's too much of the schoolboy in me all of which is neither here nor there. What we've got to do is actually and literally to clear that raffle. If you'll come with me in the boat, we'll get to work and straighten things out. When the top men clear the raffle with their clasp knives in their teeth, she quoted at me, and for the rest of the afternoon we made merry over our labor. Her task was to hold the boat in position while I worked at the tangle. And such a tangle! Halyards, sheets, guys, downhauls, shrouds, stays, all washed about, and back and forth and through, and twined and knotted by the sea. I cut no more than was necessary, and what with passing the long ropes under and around the booms and masts, of unreaving the halyards and sheets, of coiling down in the boat and uncoiling in order to pass through another knot in the bight, I was soon wet to the skin. The sails did require some cutting, and the canvas, heavy with water, tried my strength severely, but I succeeded before nightfall in getting it all spread out on the beach to dry. We were both very tired when we knocked off for supper, and we had done good work, too, though to the eye it appeared insignificant. Next morning, with Maud as able assistant, I went into the hold of the ghost to clear the steps of the mast butts. We had no more than begun work when the sound of my knocking and hammering brought Wolf Larsen. 
Hello, below! He cried down the open hatch. The sound of his voice made Maud quickly draw close to me, as for protection, and she rested one hand on my arm while we parlayed. Hello on deck, I replied. Good morning to you. What are you doing down there? he demanded. Trying to scuttle my ship for me? Quite the opposite. I'm repairing her, was my answer. But what in thunder are you repairing? There was puzzlement in his voice. Why, I'm getting everything ready for re-stepping the masts, I replied easily, as though it were the simplest project imaginable. It seems as though you're standing on your own legs at last, Hump, we heard him say, and then for some time he was silent. But I say, Hump, he called down, you can't do it. Oh, yes, I can, I retorted. I'm doing it now. But this is my vessel, my particular property. What if I forbid you? You forget, I replied. You were no longer the biggest bit of the ferment. You were once, and able to eat me, as you were pleased to phrase it, but there has been a diminishing, and now I am able to eat you. The yeast has grown stale. He gave a short, disagreeable laugh. <laughs> I see you're working my philosophy back on me for all it's worth, but don't make the mistake of underestimating me. For your own good, I warn you. Since when have you become a philanthropist, I queried? Confess now, in warning me for my own good, that you were very consistent. He ignored my sarcasm, saying, Suppose I clap the hatch on now. You won't fool me as you did in the lazarette. Wolf Larsen, I said sternly, for the first time addressing him by this, his most familiar name. I am unable to shoot a helpless, unresisting man. You have proved that to my satisfaction as well as yours. But I warn you now, and not so much for your own good as for mine, that I shall shoot you the moment you attempt a hostile act. I can shoot you now as I stand here, and if you are so minded, just go ahead and try to clap on that hatch. Nevertheless, I forbid you. I distinctly forbid your tampering with my ship. But, man, I expostulated. You advance the fact that it is your ship as though it were a moral right. You have never considered moral rights in your dealings with others. You surely do not dream that I'll consider them in dealing with you. I had stepped underneath the open hatchway so that I could see him. The lack of expression on his face, so different from when I had watched him unseen, was enhanced by the unblinking, staring eyes. It was not a pleasant face to look upon. And none so poor, not even hump, to do him reverence, he sneered. The sneer was holy in his voice. His face remained expressionless as ever. How do you do, Miss Brewster? he said suddenly after a pause. I started. She had made no noise whatever, had not even moved. Could it be that some glimmer of vision remained to him, or that his vision was coming back? How do you do, Captain Larson? she answered. Pray, how did you know I was here? Heard your breathing, of course. I say, Hump's improving. Don't you think so? I don't know, she answered, smiling at me. I have never seen him otherwise. You should have seen him before, then. Wolf Larsen, in large doses, I murmured. 
before and after taking. "'I want to tell you again, Hump,' he said threateningly, "'that you'd better leave things alone.' "'But don't you care to escape as well as we?' I asked incredulously. "'No,' was his answer. "'I intend dying here.' "'Well, we don't,' I concluded defiantly, beginning again my knocking and hammering. End of chapter 34